is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. And you know what we've got going on today, post Boxing Day. But before the end of 2021, we had to sneak in one last special, Nick, with one of the best in the business, maybe the best in the business, Matt Law. Welcome back, Matt. Welcome back from uh, the the Christmas period. How are you? Hi, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're too, you're too kind. Um, not necessarily strictly accurate either, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, good, good. Had a good rest. Had a good rest. I've been trying to take it easy the last few days. And then, uh, yeah, pick it up, pick it properly back up um, while we're talking Tuesday. So tomorrow for the Brighton game. But I'm doing bits and bobs in between. Yep. One of those bits and bobs. Unfortunately, yeah. we're going to start with some breaking news, Matt. And uh looks like Ben Chilwell is going to have to have kind of a full ACL surgery situation uh, happening, uh, which would you know, kind of effectively rule him out for the rest of the 21-22 season. Uh Thoughts, feelings, any yeah. news that's come across? Yeah, I mean, look, it's worse fears confirmed, to be honest with you. I, when I first reported it back in November that he'd done the ACL and that he was out for the remainder of the year, I was actually told at that stage that it was probably 80% certain he would require surgery. Now, weirdly, in the last couple of weeks, the noises have been a little bit more optimistic. I know Ben himself was feeling, other than having COVID, was feeling quite good and really hopeful that maybe he might avoid surgery um but sadly it's gone the other way and i don't want to be overly negative for you guys but i would be surprised if he's available to start the start of next season yeah um i've spoken to somebody in the last hour who who puts his return somewhere around august which makes it very unlikely he's starting games in august when you when you look at how these things go at the very best if he comes back in August, he would be on the bench in August, not starting games. Um, and more likely, he wouldn't be ready to start games until September or October. Look, there'll be no time scale put on it. Maybe Touchwood, maybe he gets back a bit quicker than then. But I, I, I would at this moment be saying, and this is what I'll be reporting today, um, is that he's he's out for this season and, and probably out for the start of next season too, which leaves Chelsea in a tough spot. First of all, you feel sorry for the lad himself, but it's a it's a big dilemma now for Chelsea about what they do. Well, I know Nick, this was as Matt put it, worst fears confirmed. I know it uh, also interrupted Matt playing Legos with the kids, and <laughs> it uh, it's really, bad all it's around. Wrecking, it's bad yeah, it's all around. A lot of lives. Um, My kids are the real victims in this. I was helping them put together <laughs> Lego sets, trying to have a bit of a day off before this news broke. Um, Matt, what would you understand or what do you think now the club's reaction is going to be heading into a January? We talked last week about what happens in January. Maybe it's super quiet. And I feel like the calculus of what Chelsea needs to do now this January might might have changed a bit. There's a lot for them to think about because there's a lot. There's actually a lot of different options they've got. Number one option and the least the, the least popular option, I imagine, would be to do nothing and try and stick it out with Alonso and then have people like Saul, uh, Reese James swapping flanks or Callum filling in for cup games. That's obviously, I think, probably the least popular option among fans, particularly when I'm talking about the fact he could miss, that Ben could miss the start of next season too. 
The other option would be to recall a loanee. So you've got Emerson Palmieri and Ian Matson both on loan. Ian Matson, he would only really be coming back to provide a bit of cover. Would he even be ahead of those people I've just talked about as cover for Alonso? I know he's a he's a promising player, but I'm not so sure he would be in Tuchel's eyes. Emerson, obviously, far more experienced and, and would be more likely to, to kind of go up along Alonso for the position. Third option, sign a new left-back. Now, that's a tricky one because, obviously, you know you're getting a 50 million left-back coming back. You know, he is going to come back. And this injury these days is an injury that keeps you out for a long time, but it's not as serious as it used to be. And people make full recoveries and are able to get back to their very best from it. So... Chelsea have got to lot, factor a lot into that thought. Now, two interesting people, I think, who are going to get a mention in terms of sign, if, whether they could make a sign-in. Lucas Digne has obviously already been mentioned a lot, and he is an out-and-out left wing-back. The, the problem with him, with signing him, is that you're signing someone who would come in wanting to be a first-choice left-back, doesn't really play any other positions. So moving forward, you then leave yourself with sort of four left-backs at the club because they haven't actually sold Emerson yet, which which gives them a, a, a dilemma. Secondly, someone like Sergio Dest, who I know is available from Barcelona, he's more known as a right-back, but he can play left-back. He's played left-back a lot, and he's played left-back well before um, for both Barcelona and Holland. I think. Um, sorry, USA. He picked USA, didn't he? What am I about? You guys know him better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um and I think he's played left-back for USA. I'm pretty sure he has. So he would be quite an interesting person because obviously if you sign him, you've got an option for left-back for the rest of the season. But then when Chilwell comes back, he's someone who could potentially provide cover and competition on the right. We know that Thomas Tuchel tried to sign Hakimi. We also know that he was interested in Adama Traore, but the club weren't quite so interested. So that is a position Tuchel's looked at before. So someone like Dest might come into the reckoning. Um, but, I mean, we're literally talking a few hours since this news has been confirmed. So, unfortunately for all of us, it's a little bit too early for me to give you a sort of an accurate idea. I would imagine the next two or three days there will be some very serious thought gone into, out of those options, what, what Chelsea do. It's it is really interesting. I I, I know Dest pretty well, uh, having watched the U.S. for a long time. Does not strike me as defensively sound enough to make Tuchel's system work in the way that it has in the past. Maybe it means the system has to change if you bring someone like him in. But that that has struck me as kind of a, a out of left field option, uh, to be honest. Uh, and. Likewise, I think Dina has been hurt a lot recently, hasn't he? Yeah. Isn't he pretty yeah. injury prone? So yeah. are, are those, I mean, of the options that you just listed, Matt, is is bringing Emerson back the least crazy? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, bringing Emerson back would make a lot of sense, to be quite honest with you. Um, because, you know, you, you, you know what you're getting. He knows the club. He knows the teammates. Right. There shouldn't be an adaption period. There shouldn't be a settling in period. You're competing in five competitions. You need someone who can come in and 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 make an impact immediately. 
But I, I, the other thing about Emerson's loan deal, I honestly, I do, I'd have to check on this in the next few days because I, I actually do not know the exact terms of that loan deal, um, and whether it's a simple recall or not a simple recall. And also, you know, you, you, you know, the, the will of the player will come into it as well. And I think we know that in the summer, Emerson was quite keen to get away. He has been for a while. Mm-hmm. He wasn't keen sitting on the bench at all, and he would come in again as number two to Alonso at least to start with. Um, so there's just so much to think about and go through. I mean, it's interesting you sort of talk about left field options. I mean, if, if Chelsea end up signing somebody, I think it would be more likely some sort of left field option. Doesn't mean I'm saying it will be Des, doesn't mean I'm saying it will be Dinya. It could well be a different left field option, but I don't see an obvious option out there. And I also think they will be wary of signing a left wing back specialist mm. who can't do anything else because going forward, it, it gives you a problem within the squad. Them. I mean, we we know I know that Alonso splits opinion among Chelsea fans, but we also do know that Tuchel's actually quite keen on Alonso. You know, he started him ahead of Chilwell at the, the start of the season. He started him ahead of Chilwell when he first came in. He likes his aerial capability. Um, he seems to like his personality, which not all Chelsea managers have done in the past. Um, so he he is well liked by Tuchel. I, I don't think that sort of fan opinion of Alonso is necessarily shared by the head coach. Yeah, it's, the desk thing is interesting uh, if we're talking left field options because uh, I know Barcelona have to, they're in a tough situation. They're like the mutual beneficiary slash uh, team that would that would actually take a hit on this because we kind of know their situation at this point. So price gouging is probably not a part of their, uh, a part of their the recipe at the moment. Uh, yeah, Dest is a really, really talented footballer, very attack-minded, very much a right-footed player. Has scored in, in the last World Cup uh, cycle, scored an absolute worldie for the USA on his left foot. It, weird. It feels like a weird fit to me, and I like the guy. Like it just, it's strange. Look, uh, I'm only talking options. I just know he's available. Um, yeah, I don't know, and I know I, I know that there are agents involved with him that would would have relationships with Chelsea, um, and it, it's just one that's been mentioned to me today to, to keep a little eye on. Hmm. Um, I don't want to go too strong on it at this stage because I don't Fair enough. Really know. I mean, the interesting thing as well about Des is it, it was you know when he went to Barcelona, he Bayern Munich were trying to sign him, weren't they? You know, everyone was okay. Yeah, very highly rated within European football, so. Um, but yeah, the next next few days, stroke week or so, I think we'll have a clearer picture on perhaps where Chelsea go with this. But it's left them. I mean, I think I said the, the other option. Actually, there is probably a what option are we on to now? Fourth or fifth option? <laughs> the the very last option would be to to keep Alonso, decide that Saul is going to be your fill in left wing back, and actually use it as the opportunity to go and sign a midfielder in the January transfer window. And and use the space within the squad within that. Well, Matt, we're ripping so up the script to... again because we're going to Rip pull more up. forward now. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about the fact that obviously, you know, we there were pluses to the match, the Law LIBP Derby that we had mm-hmm. uh, just this past weekend, but it has left again another question around the availability of midfielders at Chelsea <laughs> with Ngolo Conte picking up another knock to the same knee 
that he previously did in that kept him out for an extended period of time. What's your sense on if that's changed again, the equation for Chelsea in terms of going out to tap up a to a many, bring him in potentially uh, lay the foundation for the transition in the summer to, you know, additional midfielders because the, the club is just maybe a little short in that area right now. This is a difficult one for me to talk about because I'm, my knowledge on what was going on is pre-news on Chilwell. And I'm obviously not quite quite sure of how this affects everything. Pre, pre-confirmation of Chilwell surgery, I know for sure that the hope at the club was that um, come the middle of January, uh, they will have got over their COVID issues and they will have got over the worst of their injury issues in that midfield and the midfield will look a lot healthier than it has done for the past month. Um, so I think that the hope and the expectation was at Chelsea pre this news on Chilwell that they would actually not have to sign a midfielder in this window and it would probably end up being one of the priorities for the summer transfer window when obviously you have better options, you have more time and you have a better bargaining power. Um, and I still think that that will probably be option number A for them at the moment. You know, they, they will hope that having had a lot of players contract coronavirus, you know, I know you can get it again, but it's probably less likely you get it again. They're going through the booster program with the majority of their players now who a lot of them are vaccinated. So I still think there'll be a hope that come mid-January, they'll look a lot healthier than they are now in that midfield. And when their midfield is generally healthy, there are... You know, for the sake of this season, there are a lot of options. The people like them all or not is a different thing. Um, but that that would be my reading of that, that ideally they would get through this season. Now, like I just said, does Chilwell and the whole look at the whole squad, does that change anything? And does Kante's latest... Ne- the, the problem with the Kante injuries is you can never quite be sure how long he's going to miss because what seems an innocuous injury with Kante can all of a sudden become a one-month, six-week injury with him at the moment. It's very, very difficult to get clear readings on Kante injuries. Um, look, I know it wasn't for the fault of this. I'm a little bit frustrated with Tuchel, though, when he complains about the, the options in midfield and his fitness because I know too that Kante didn't get an injury against Brentford. But he had said to the press pre-Brentford that he would not in any way risk Kante against Brentford. He had told us he wasn't going to play and wasn't going to be on the bench because he wasn't going to take any risks with him. And then lo and behold, he gets thrown on for 15, 20 minutes at the end of that game. And I was kind of thinking, what on earth's going on? So I'm a bit frustrated with some of Tuchel's complaints because I feel he's, he's making decisions himself that are taking a few risks as well as having everything I don't think everything is necessarily being forced upon him um but yeah the the Kante one will be huge if Kante ends up being another six weeks or something then I think they might have to look at it if Kante is literally only out for the Brighton game and people start getting back healthy I'd imagine they'll try and delay the midfielder thing until the summer that's not to say they don't try and do something whereby they get an agreement or try and sign someone sort of now who can then join in the summer. We've seen Chelsea do that a couple of times recently with with both Pulisic and um, Ziyech, who I think was a February signing to join in the summer. Is, is Chiuameni 
potentially the first name on the call sheet if if they do try something? It feels like it's heading in that direction. It feels like it's heading in that direction. I think he shares an agent with Koundé, who they're still very much in touch with. I think there's a good relationship between Chelsea and Koundé's agent from everything that went on in the summer. There was certainly no blame attached to Koundé's agent that that deal ended up going heading south. It was all sort of put on Seville, changing the goalpost. And I know Koundé's agent was was annoyed with Seville. So there's an obvious link there. It feels that he would be the sort of cheaper option than, than Declan Rice. Whether that makes him option number A, let, let's see. But I, I certainly think at the moment there's a direction of travel that is, is quite positive in terms of uh, Chelsea and Chimeni. And Although there would definitely be other people involved with Chimeni. With I, I can't imagine that Chelsea would have a clear run at him at all. If they if they do wait towards some or, uh, you know, kind of the longer term option, is, is Rice then back on the table, do you think? Well, the interest, the reason I bring up Pulisic and Ziyech is someone like Schumeni is, is someone maybe I could see them, if they decided that he was the one, I could see them maybe trying to do something with him, not necessarily in January, but before the summer, lined up for the summer to, to get a bit of a head start so that they're not drawn into an auction or some sort of mad bidding process come the summer when you might have Man United going big at midfielders. Man City are going to have to make a decision whether they give Fernandinho another one-year extension or whether they actually look to bring in a defensive midfielder. It could potentially be quite a big summer for, for defensive midfielders among some of the top clubs. You could even get Liverpool getting involved in, in something. So that's why I think it would be interesting on many whether they tried to do something ahead of the summer, even if they weren't actually trying to sign him in January. Rice, if they don't do too many before then, then I mean, Rice for me, just... I watched Rice, um, which game was it, that, that West Ham, the, the Tottenham game. I had to cover the Tottenham game in the, the Carabao. I was actually watching that game rather than the Chelsea game. It was my work asked me to do that game. And Rice was just ridiculous. I mean, it sounds like I'm a broken record on Rice, but he was unbelievably good. And I just look at Rice and I just think, wow, you know, whoever buys him is just buying an absolute Rolls-Royce of a midfielder who's just going to dominate and dominate for them for years. And, you know, look, if I was City with Fernandinho, like I say, coming to the end of his one one year extension, I would definitely be looking in that direction. Man United are definitely interested. And I, I just think Chelsea should should go all out for him. But that they have been very reticent on the price up to now. And I'd imagine they're very reticent again. The other one who's quite interesting, you know, is, is Calvin Phillips still hasn't, signed a new contract at, at Leeds United. Hmm. And Le- Leeds are in problems down there. And I do think he will be on the radar of a lot of the top four because he's an excellent player um, and he's yet to commit to Leeds. Everybody at Leeds seems to think he will, but it's been a long time now that that contract situation has been d- bubbling on. I think at the end of this year, he'd still have another year left. So you'd imagine they would have to, if they haven't got him signed up by the summer, they'll have to consider bids, if nothing else. Well, that definitely gives so many people things to think about what happens to Chelsea's defensive situation, what happens to our midfield situation. Uh, Again, we tore up the script because we had questions, we had things that we thought we were going to talk about, and uh, Lego time got interrupted, and... Regular questions got interrupted. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a real quick break and thank these sponsors for supporting the show, and we'll be right back. 
All right, Matt. Um, one of the questions that we had gotten um, from from two of our listeners, uh, Tana and the Dragon, uh, asking a little bit more about is the Premier League going to do anything regarding what's kind of coming up with the match fixture congestion that we're going to see with uh, teams now having two games, three games potentially to make up, and then also wondering what happened with the whole five sub thing. Like this was something where. You know, Conte even was talking about it as well. Um, you know, we've seen multiple managers come out and say, yes, we'd love to do this. And uh, it seems like one uh, uh, Ginger Mourinho at Burnley might be uh, in opposition to uh, this uh, this kind of way of trying to manage through a really, really tough period. And any thoughts or information you can kind of can provide on that angle? Look, at the moment, nothing's changing on the schedule. Um and that's the clubs. The clubs didn't want to. You know, there were there were three, well, there were two meetings last week. One was the clubs with the Premier League, and then you had the managers and the players, which was kind of a, a joint meeting. Um, and they were all meant to be on the same day to start with, and then the managers and the players were pushed back until the Thursday. And at that point, you knew what was going to happen. They were only pushed back for one reason. That's because the clubs went in. And the majority of the clubs didn't want a change. The majority of the clubs wanted to keep playing as they were because they're terrified over what will happen over the broadcasting rights and the money. And therefore, the managers and the players, as Antonio Conte then went, went said after the managers' meeting, it was like talking to a wall because the decision had already been made. But to be quite honest with you, apart from those managers who clubs were kind of on their side, I think Liverpool were on Jurgen Klopp's side. And I think I actually said on this show that I wouldn't have been surprised if Chelsea were actually on Tuchel's side. But the majority of those managers' complaints need to be with their clubs because the clubs want to play on. The clubs went into the Premier League meeting and as a majority agreed, we'll play on and keep going because we don't want to risk having to pay money back to various broadcasters. So that's not going to change. Until the clubs change, nothing can change. It doesn't matter what the managers think, doesn't matter what the players think. Until the clubs change their outlook, that's how it goes. And if the clubs are not willing to give up risk giving up any money on broadcast deals it won't change so that's that on the five subs it's like anything else you would need four 14 clubs in the premier league to agree to it to, to get it through um and you're just not going to get that you're just not going to get the the, the the majority vote for it i know that dice has, has sort of gone public on on not wanting the five subs last last season actually dean smith at villa went public on that he wouldn't want five subs. And other than the top six six or so, it doesn't really suit the other clubs. Um, because again, you're talking about the clubs and not necessarily the players here. The players would all like it, of course. And maybe a few more managers would like it, but it doesn't suit the clubs because the, for a lot of clubs like Burnley, like Palace, like Southampton, even like Villa, your only real chance of beating, your big chance of beating a Man City, a Chelsea, a Liverpool, is that you catch them on a day where they're not at full strength or they get injuries within a match and they become not at full strength in a game. Taking that away from those clubs or those clubs deciding would, would be like Turkey's voting for Christmas. They're taking away any hope they've got of actually ever beating any of these clubs in, in one-off situations. So they're not going to vote for it. Rightly or wrongly, by the way, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the reality. Yeah, it's it's strange to look at the current situation. 19 matches canceled to this point. A lot of players out, sick or injured, and go. 
two more subs is going to be the thing that really breaks us here. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, it it kind of drives me nuts, to be honest. But I guess I'll lodge my complaint with the appropriate people. I, I just, I don't get it. Look, I mean, personally, personally, I think we're having my personal opinion, which doesn't really matter, is that we've got one too many games in the festive period. This this round of games that we've got coming this week is one too many. Yep. And I also think that um, two-legged semi-finals for the Carabao are ridiculous, not needed. And this thing that we've done with the FA Cup now, where they've agreed not to have replays, needs to not just be a one-off. That needs to maintain. And I quite like... Someone came up with an idea, and look, I know this this is a bit convoluted, but someone came up with an idea once whereby, why don't you have five subs, but if you're going to use five of the subs, two of the subs have to be academy graduates or have to be some sort of under-23 graduate. So maybe you can have signed them as an under-23 player. So it also encourages the use of youth a little bit and not just on clubs being able to call on you know 100 million pound signings off the bench maybe that's the way to look at it as well so you can still save players but you're also encouraging bringing players through that's probably too convoluted and clubs still wouldn't vote for it but i remember someone suggesting that idea last season and i really quite liked it yeah. obviously actually chelsea would be in a great situation with that because <laughs> their academy is better than most first teams well, Chelsea would be at the front of the queue for that one. They'd be uh, <laughs> leading the charge and banging the drum. Um, all right, let, let's go to some more lighthearted, uh, fun questions. We got a ton of things from listeners on a variety of different topics. And uh, we had Mike with a question here about, like, so given that Tuchel's staying, uh, which he's also saying that Tuchel's staying five years, which would be the uh, double <laughs> life expectancy <laughs> yeah. of a Chelsea manager... Uh, what would you think the starting eleven would look like at Chelsea five years from now? Oh, what? That's an impossible question. <laughs> Am I? You can't predict anything in five years. You can't predict anything in five months, let alone five years at Chelsea. Oh my word, that is an absolute. That's probably the hardest question I've ever been asked. Um, I can't begin to answer it. It's impossible to answer. I'm sorry. Who was it who emailed that question? It was uh, Mike. Mike Fine. Sorry, Mike, that's that's just impossible to answer. Like I say, five months is an eternity at Chelsea, let alone five years. Oh, I wouldn't know where to start. Nick, I, I guess you would start maybe with the fact that you would imagine Mason, Reese probably would be in the squad still. Maybe Mendy, uh, you know, you know, Lukaku's on a long deal. You would hope that he would probably be at the club still. Maybe he would become the second choice striker or Broja now. Leading the line for Chelsea? I, I don't know. I'm trying to workshop, like, what, what could the reality be? <laughs> It'd be 30, yeah. Lukaku would be 33. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, mean if, if Tuchel's at Chelsea five years from now, we have won a ton of trophies. Yeah. That's all I know. Yeah, let's start with that, because the average tenure of a Chelsea manager is one and a half seasons, and uh, so that would be three times uh, the length of a, an average tenure, so... And and, and let's let's not be too um, too romantic about this. If Chelsea end up not finishing with a trophy this season, we'll be doing shows about whether Tuchel's on dodgy ground at Chelsea and whether he could get sacked. That's how it works at Chelsea. Yep. 
So to talk about Chelsea at Tuchel and five years is extremely optimistic at the moment. But, but I, I like the guy's optimism. I do like the guy's optimism. All right. Well, uh, we'll go to maybe a more uh, easily answered question. Matt, Brent asked the question. We talked about Tuchel speaking at football and in press conferences with the intelligence and openness. He said, without being disparaging, would you like to share experiences with managers who chose a different communication style <laughs> or maybe have been more difficult to deal with? Well, of, of the Chelsea of the Chelsea managers I've covered, uh, Maurizio Sarri was one of the worst for that. I mean, he had no interest in communication whatsoever. I know, I know he splits the fan base a little bit. I know he's a bit of a lightning rod on social media. You get fans who who really like him and, and thought he was hard done by in terms of the press he got. And you get others who never took to him at all. Um, but from a press point of view, he was very hard to deal with. He just had literally no interest in trying to communicate his point, didn't care about it, didn't see it as important, which was, to me, very naive of him. Um, because these days you have to be able to communicate whether you like the press or don't like the press. Roberto Di Matteo was quite difficult for that. Hmm. Um, some of the, I don't mind the fiery managers. The fiery managers all have a go at you. I, I really don't mind. You know, Jose would really rip into you sometimes and have a go at you. Um, but he, equally, he'd always be interesting and he'd, um, he'd always sort of give you, give you what we call in the industry a line. Conte has always been good to deal with. Again, can, can get very angry with you. That really doesn't bother me. I don't need a man personally as a journalist. I don't need a manager to be nice to me. I don't need to be a manager's friend. I'm sort of old enough that I don't really care whether the manager particularly sees me. I hope he respects me, but I certainly don't need to see any degree of friendship or align myself to him as such. It's just a, a working respect that you look for. And Tuchel, I've got to say, Tuchel is absolutely brilliant at that. He's He's not one to pick out favourites. He's not pally with the press. He's not matey with the press. I don't think he deals with any press guys outside what he does on an official basis with Chelsea. But he's he's so respectful. He's so professional at communicating and dealing with us. He's excellent at it. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry by a country mile in my time covering Chelsea has, has been... The worst, not necessarily the most. What Sari wouldn't do is Sari wouldn't have a go at you because he didn't care. Sari wouldn't <laughs> shout or rant or rave at you because he just genuinely didn't care. He, he he didn't care what you wrote. He didn't care what fans said. He didn't care what the outside thought of him. Um, so there was no no real threat of of getting a dressing down from Sari. But I would rather have a manager who cares and might occasionally shout at you and have a go at you than than uh, than just didn't care at all. All right. Well, on the note of professional respect, um, uh, we have a question from Keith here. He says, as a journalist, do you recommend to follow anyone else besides yourself as a trusted football news source? I think we're, we're looking for uh, quality over quantity here. Well, I, I suppose because we're on a Chelsea podcast, we're talking about mainly sort of Chelsea related. I think related. Pick, pick from a lot. Uh, it doesn't have to be Chelsea. Well, look, I mean, as a journalist, I really respect someone at my newspaper, Sam Wallace. I think he's excellent. He doesn't really line himself to a club. He covers things more generally and writes lots of very broad columns. I must warn you, they're not always positive on all clubs and things like that, but I think he's very, very good, 
good journalist, uh, other newspapers, people I really respect. This guy at the Daily Mail who's covered Chelsea for a long, long time called Matt Barlow, who I think is very, very good. Dominic Fryfield at The Athletic, I think is very, very good. Again, someone who's covered Chelsea a lot, um, not quite so closely these days. Um, and then like general account, I, what I, the, the, some of the accounts that I really respect on Twitter are, are you know, people like Chelsea Youth, um, people like, I think he was formerly known as Carefree Youth, might have changed his Twitter name, I don't know. but uh, Scott. Yeah, they, they, they really dial into uh, the minutiae sometimes of the, the clubs and have a real forensic knowledge of both those accounts have a forensic knowledge of the, the youth setup at Chelsea and the youth players and the, the loan players. And I, I really respect accounts like that because I know how much work must go into actually keep across all that. And it's very, very difficult to do. And both of those accounts I've generally found extremely reliable and on the ball. So a lot of respect there, but there's, a, there's an awful lot, very difficult for me to, to name a lot. But yeah, the general journalist, Sam Wallace, Matt Barlow, Dominic Fifield um, would be would be guys I I would read quite often. Well, also Matt, and this this became a little journalist centric and you uh, centric, but uh, Mr. Thurman asking the question: uh, What did younger Matt want to be when he grew up? Uh, which you also can reject the premise of the question and say you haven't grown up and you're still a child at heart. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but how did football journalism become the answer for you? To be honest, most most football journalists are the same. Basically, we're frustrated footballers who just weren't good enough at any level to to play the game, and and therefore found kind of the next best thing almost. Um, yeah, just that. I was absolutely football obsessed at school. I was football obsessed as a kid. Um, I was I was an okay player, kind of school and and that sort of level. Not one of these people who would claim to have had trials at professional clubs and things like that. No, I was never that good. So it was fairly clear from an early age that I was never going to be good enough to actually uh, try and make any sort of living out of football. So then it's a case of looking at what you can do around football to kind of be as close to it as you can and and do it that way. I mean, obviously, back when I was doing that, there wasn't there wasn't stuff like podcasts to do. There wasn't even really, you know, now people can get into coaching without having been particularly brilliant at football. Back when I was a kid, you wouldn't even dream about going into looking at a career in coaching without being good at football or very, very good at football. Um, so now there's probably more avenues to people who who aren't good enough to be footballers about what they might try and do in and around it. But when I was a kid, journalism, football journalists probably looked like the next best thing. Okay. That, so you, you kind of knew early on, right? That it- oh, yeah, very, very early on. I mean, look, I... I yeah, very early on, I I used to devour. Again, as well, you've got to remember, um, there's no other way of getting news on your club back then either. The only mm. news I ever got on on football was to run downstairs and get the newspaper as quick as I could, and that's what I would literally do most mornings. You know, I would literally run downstairs and get the newspaper and see if there were any news about Villa signings, Villa injuries, Villa anything. That was how you you got all the news back then. So from a very early age, it was ingrained on me that I would love to be doing this because that was literally the only communication tool from the clubs. Again, that has changed massively now. That's completely turned on its head. But but to me, I was so involved in acquiring my football news, like everybody does now on Twitter and tries to follow every account and all over. The only way was to get the local paper or the national paper and look. And 
So from really, really early age, I just saw that as being an absolute dream to be involved in that. How would Matt, the reporter, profile Matt, the player, in terms of describing <laughs> the, the player? <laughs> Slow, lazy, uh, bad attitude. Uh, I would I would kill myself. I'd absolutely rip myself to shreds. I'd be saying this this guy needs to be cut out of the football club at ev- all costs. Get this guy out, he's nicking a living. Um, yeah, I, I was. Uh, I, I used. To, you, don't get me wrong. I used to. I used to score quite a lot of goals and things. I used to play up front and, and score quite a lot of goals. But I was a very lazy, lazy sort of selfish striker, who, um, yeah, not 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 a great team guy in 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 it. So I, I would have, if I was writing a report on myself, I'd have killed. I'd have ripped myself to pieces. Absolutely killed myself. I, I kind of want to. I want to remake. <laughs> that like do those little like clips from back in the day, like the old uh, like the uh-huh. old English football clubs. Uh, I would love to do that with a a stand-in actor playing yourself. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna do a couple of fun ones to end this uh, end this pod, Matt. Uh, first is a urine review. So this is going to be a comparison one. Uh, the question is, what book, uh, imprints or movie for the slightly lazier, less intellectual of us, do you think is most accurately resembles Chelsea's year? Premier League's year and the Champions League's year in review. Is there anything that you know creatively that you're kind of juiced up on? Oh my god! Um, Just start with Chelsea's year. Let's start there. What a film! A film of the see that my problem with films um, is that I'm only really these days watching films that my kids will watch. So you know the the latest films that I've I've watched are like Ron's Gone Wrong. the latest thing that's been put on Disney Plus for Christmas in Campto or whatever it's called. I, I only watch these kids' films, so you need some sort of massive... What's what's the best redemption film out there? Because that was Chelsea's year, wasn't it? You know, everything was... We got to January and everything was going very wrong in January and all of a sudden it was the biggest turnaround redemption movie you can see. So you need to find a brilliant redemption movie. I mean, or is, redemption is it book. Shawshank Redemption then? Is that where you're kind of headed? <laughs> But that's a very, I like that film. That's obviously not a film from this year. Um, but yeah, it's got to be a redemption film. The, the sort of, and the, the film that you'd probably look, you'd probably watch the film or even read the book and you'd get to the ending and you say, that's ridiculous. That, <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous ending. That's just too unrealistic. Uh, you know, that, that Champions League win, you'd get to the end of the book or whatever, or the film, and ah, that's stupid. They ruined it. They ruined it by letting it get too stupid at the end. Uh, that would be my cynical take on it. But yeah, just a <laughs> massive, massive redemption, and probably something that ended up pretty feel-good. So it sounds like Matt's coming with season eight of Game of Thrones. That's how it... Oh, feel good? Um, <laughs> but that, that, was so dis- don't, no, that was so disappointing, though, wasn't it? Don't you think season eight of Game of Thrones was so disappointing? Oh, it's awful. Yeah, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, I know what you're saying, but it was stupid such a disappointment. Ending. Yeah, yeah, stupid ending. But I felt so bitter about the way that finished that I'd struggle to relate that to Chelsea. But I know what you're saying. All right. Well, let's let's do one here that then lands us in the end and gets you back to Lego time with uh, with the family. <laughs> but we had Techie asking the question, "What's your New Year's tradition?" 
I mean, obviously, this year maybe is a little different in terms of how we will all celebrate uh, again. Um, and we might have practice from last year. Um, but what what are your kind of uh, must do's on a, a New Year's Eve, New Year's Day type of uh, type of experience there? Well, I don't, I don't, um, I don't make New Year's resolutions, and never have done, um, and I never go in for dry January. I do occasionally do dry months, but I don't bother with sort of doing one that everybody's doing. And there's usually too much booze still in the house in, in January to, to dry January. So I usually run out the booze first and then decide around February, March time that I'm going to uh, have a dry month. Um, New Year's always a little bit of a non-event for me because actually this year I'm not, but most years I'm working New Year's Day. So I have to be a little bit a little bit careful. I've got two young kids, so I'm a bit boring on New Year. I don't These days I don't tend to do a lot. This year, I will see people and we'll have a few drinks because Chelsea are on January the 2nd. Massive game, by the way. Um, but um, So that gives me a little bit more freedom. But gen- generally, I'm the guy who will drive the family somewhere and, and drive home because I'm getting up for a match the next day and got to drive somewhere or do some and say, yeah, New Year's, Christmas is a bigger deal in, in my household with the kids than New Year's, to be honest with you. Fair enough. You pop in champagne at, at whatever, 9.30? Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. Do that. Have a glass or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of that, but nothing, nothing crazy. Not like in my youth when it was, you know, book, booking tickets at some awful cheesy nightclub and, and trying to stay out all night and all that business. But yeah, been a long time since any of that's happened. The subject of our next pod, Young Matt and the Habits Thereof. <laughs> yeah, that... that that wouldn't happen because my employment wouldn't last too long. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, it's wonderful. We, uh, we, I think, will speak for on behalf of all of our listeners, Matt, on uh, uh, wonderful to record with you uh, so regularly in 2021 and uh, the knowledge and education you've brought to them and, and to us has been fantastic. And mm-hmm. uh, we hope that you have a wonderful uh, New Year's Eve and uh, look forward to uh, more fun conversations in 2022. Same to you guys. I mean, 2021 has been really positive pods generally, hasn't it? It must be kind of 95% positive. Because like I say, from January onwards, it just got so positive for everyone. So Nick didn't, uh, Nick didn't know what to do with himself. It was yeah. really just a, a conflict of crisis for it him. Was, it was too much. Yeah. It's too much. We, we haven't had much opportunity to rant in 2021 on these podcasts. So and you won't want an opportunity to rent in 2022 either. So let's see what happens. We hopefully will chart the positive course and continue to do so. But uh, we, we wish you a wonderful New Year's. Wish uh, to all of our listeners who may listen to this. Don't listen to another one before the end of the year. But we'll have a bright match review. We'll have uh, our year in review episode as well. So there's plenty of content left coming. Uh, so get stuck into that. But uh, don't forget, uh, subscribe to Matt's newsletter. Get tons of information, which is pretty fantastic. And, uh, you know, it doesn't cost you anything, which is also a really wonderful thing, too. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.